Good morning. Very warm welcome. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm director of the Institute for Government and I want to welcome you to the IFG's programme of a packed programme of events today at Labour's virtual party conference, something that uh, all the parties are getting used to this year. And we've been delighted at the response and hope you stay with us for quite a bit of the day. I'm going to kick off by talking to Wes Streeting, MP, who is very kindly standing in for Annalise Dodds, the Shadow Chancellor, uh, as she's uh, preparing for a speech later today. And Wes Streeting, as you know, is MP for Ilford North, has been that since 2015, and is also Shadow Exchequer Secretary to the Treasury, and so abreast of all things economic for Labour. Wes, very good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And I'm sorry I'm not Annalise. Lisa, but hopefully I'll be in, um, an effective understudy. We'll find out very shortly. There is absolutely no need to apologise for that. This is a short and sharp event. We're, we're going to have a, a, a quick uh, 20 minutes of it around some of the key questions. And let me let me start right off. I mean, the, the government's economic response has is widely thought to be one of its most successful aspects of the whole coronavirus response. What is it that you would do differently, if anything? Well, I think after um, a pretty strong start of being um, fairly collaborative, um, engaging with us as the opposition, engaging with trade unions, business leaders, I think the, the challenge for the Chancellor is that he's adopting an increasingly sort of stubborn posture uh, and sticking to what we've been criticising for some time now as a one-size-fits-all um, response to the pandemic. We know that for a whole number of businesses and sectors, the impact of COVID-19 has been uh, deeper. Uh, it will be longer lasting. And that was before um, local lockdowns became a new feature of the public conversation and the sort of the local economic impact. And yet, despite these very obvious challenges, the Chancellor is still committed to winding back the job retention scheme far earlier than we think he should. We've called on him to take more of a targeted sector by sector based approach. Um, we hear, you know, as a, as a justification for the government's policies uh, that it'd be wrong to keep people languishing um, in a job that they may never return to and people would be better off being, un, you know, unfurloughed, let go and then uh, retraining, reskilling and moving into a different job. But the truth is that most people who are losing their job right now, when you look at the vacancy rates and the fact that our uh, our lifelong learning system just isn't really set up to deal with the scale of the challenge, what I think lots of people will be facing is the grim reality of Britain's social insecurity system. They're simply going from furlough onto universal credit. So, um, you know, big challenge there. So I think he's got to be more flexible, more targeted, um, extend the job retention scheme and and bring the focus back to jobs. And that's really what Annalise is going to be talking about today in her conference speech. Well, he, he would say that the, the focus is absolutely uh, on jobs. You talked about key sectors there. What are the key sectors that Labour would prioritise? Well, if you look at the, um, the sectors that still have significant proportion of people uh, furloughed, you know, is things like hospitality uh, industry, you point to creative industries as, as well. The theatres, for example, simply aren't able to open. But, you know, beneath that, there are uh, other key sectors. Um, Keir Starmer listed some of them last week in his LBC interview. We would love to have a very detailed conversation with the Treasury, who obviously have far more data on this than anyone else. But at the moment, we're still stuck having a principled argument about whether the government should um, extend at all, um, let alone um, you know, what those sectors might be. So we're hoping that with a bit more pressure, I mean, you know, the, the chorus of 
of, of criticism now. It's not just Labour politicians. We've had Conservative politicians, the Treasury Committee, business organisations, trade unions, and right. it's disappointing the Chancellor hasn't been more flexible. But I, I, I want to press you on this, this point, uh, this, this point about which sectors Labour might protect, because you've mentioned there the hospitality industry, but that, that would top many people's sense of an industry that is really going to have to change uh, permanently because of this. It may not come back in quite the same form, uh, either because the coronavirus uh, hovers as, as a, a, a kind of um, perpetual risk, even if the vaccine uh, begins to work, or just that people's behaviour has changed. And are you saying that uh, Labour would um, really protect every sector that has been hurt by coronavirus, even if there is perhaps no future for it? Well, not, not future that, that a future that doesn't resemble the past. Yeah, well, as I said, I mean, there, there are obviously some sectors that are recovering better than others, and we can see that reflected in the numbers of firms that have brought their workers back from furlough and they're now back at work. Uh, but there are other sectors that where businesses are perfectly viable, but we need to buy them more time. I mean, the alternative is we simply sort of let people go. They end up on, you know, the already um, you know, significant unemployment lists. They're languishing on universal credit. There really aren't a great number of um, good retraining and reskilling options available. That's something we're calling on the government to address today. And, you know, the cost of that to the country, um, not just to those families and the, their communities, but to, you know, the economy as a whole, um, you know, will be significant. I mean, that's why the government introduced a job retention scheme in the first place, because they recognise this at the start of the pandemic. So I think we've got to weigh up the cost of not acting versus the um, the costs of extending, like other countries have, Ireland, France, Germany. I mean, there are plenty of examples uh, where governments are taking a more flexible approach, and that's what we want the government to do today. Well, I can see the case uh, for sending the furlough scheme. Um, and I wouldn't be astonished if the Chancellor did it, uh, to be honest, while government is still imposing lockdowns, because if you've got the government telling people that they can't work, um, uh, and yet that that is going to be a temporary state of affairs, then you've got an argument uh, for, for, um, for job support. But I, I'm just I'm going to have one last go and ask you, you've talked about a targeted uh, response that you'd like the government to give, and you've talked then again about some sectors you think are, are, are viable in the end, uh, but not um, not while these measures are going on. Can can you name any of those sectors? Yeah, I mean, so advanced advanced manufacturing firms that are, are badly affected. The theatres are a very good example. They are perfectly viable businesses. They are shut down through no fault of their own. Um, I do think lots of those hospitality businesses, by the way, do have a shot um, at recovering. Uh, you know, uh, there, there are there's no shortage of candidates, but you know, we're we're being reasonable about this. The government have access to more data. We would love to go in and have, in the way that we did at the beginning of the JRS, a detailed conversation with government about where you draw the line, because wherever you draw the line, there'll be some controversy. Uh, but ultimately, the Treasury have more access um, to, to the sorts of data to arrive at an informed decision. And that's we'd love to have that conversation with them. But at the moment, we're still stuck having this argument about whether it's right in principle to show a bit more flexibility. How would you go about the retraining? I mean, I think you know, there's, a, there's a general case that is accepted now. If you look at the experience of the, of the, of the Welsh Valley, say in the uh, in the 80s, that um, th that communities don't just bounce back in the way some economics uh, textbooks would 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 imply that people suddenly retrain themselves. This is something that really can benefit from from government intervention. But I'm wondering if you know we're talking about some sectors, for example, hospitality, possibly airlines, being being hit for a long time. How do you get those people to retrain and what, what what into how do you how do you pick what the retraining is 
Well, the government put aside three billion, three billion pounds for a national skills fund, which so far is, you know, doesn't seem to have um, left the doors of the treasury. Uh, so uh, there is there is some funding available. I think one of the challenges is, um, you know, with when it comes to sort of retraining and lifelong learning, it's going to be a bit like sort of building a plane as it tries to take off, because the truth is that lifelong learning in this country has been neglected for far too long. Uh, and, you know, it is going to be necessary with levels of unemployment that we're likely to see and a level of structural unemployment we haven't seen in this country for decades to make sure that people can reskill and retrain into work. I mean, that that is going to need the government to move at breakneck speed. At the moment, I would say they're moving at glacial pace. And that is going to be a real challenge for the further education sector in particular, which has a crucial role to play. Um, but, you know, it just it has to be done. Uh, and you know, one of the other things we've got to think about as well is the way in which government might stimulate the economy in the short term to meet some of the long term challenges facing our country on things like infrastructure. But of course, if you if you lost your job in retail or catering, you're not going to be on a building site on Monday morning getting Crossrail finished or starting off on. This, you know, this is what I'm thinking. You don't get start to building HS2 or something. So how would Labour go about this retraining? I understand your point about lifelong learning, and that's a really interesting debate, which a lot of people, um, um, you know, think deserves much more attention. But that's not how uh, it seems to me any government is going to uh, spend emergency funds on trying to get some uh, urgent retraining uh, for people who are hit by this. So, you know, if I said to you, where's here's, here's the three billion and you say the government's being too slow, where are you going to go and spend that right now uh, to try and help at least some people retrain uh, who are badly hit by this? Where, where, where would you put it? Uh, well, I think for a start, I would do something that the government has been terrible at doing throughout this pandemic, which is working through um, our local authorities, metro mayors, to make sure that skills funding is, is directed to the right places to train people up in this with the sorts of opportunities that will be relevant to their particular locality and that will vary from region to region and I, I do think that one of the big challenges we've had throughout this pandemic uh, whether it's um, you know the emergency response and sort of getting food and supplies to people or the absolute catastrophe which is uh, test track and trace and the mess that we're in central government has got to decentralize and work more through local government local government is efficient uh, they know their communities better than anyone else and I think that they have a much bigger role to play in the future of skills provision in our country and actually we could put that to the test um, right now by directing the resources and the responsibility to local authorities um, you know I think it's 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 no surprise to hear um, people like Andy Burnham and Steve Rotherham talking about the need to build back better I think some of our local leaders get this much better than our national leaders so I think that that would be an effective way to make sure that the money is well spent and on providing opportunities to people that lead to genuine and good employment outcomes that serve the needs of local economies. Again, a lot of people would be sympathetic to the call to involve local government more, um, uh, just saying you can't run all this centrally. But what you've just described sounds like, uh, for a start, a very time consuming process, supposing Andy Burnham and lots and lots of mayors and local authority leaders are uh, all right into um, uh, the Chancellor and say, um, look, this is what the money that we think we need in, it, in our area. And then the Treasury has to decide between all these competing claims, which are going to add up to an awful lot more than three billion. It doesn't quite give us an answer to how to go and spend an inevitably limited amount of money uh, right now on retraining. 
I don't, I'm not sure that's fair, actually, Bronwyn, to be honest, because, you know, I think that, you know, a local level and, or even a regional level, uh, people do understand and are certainly leaders in local government, I would argue, understand much better than um, some of the centralised thinking in the Treasury, sort of where um, the sort of regional economic opportunities are, where some of the skills gaps lie and have the relationships with training providers in their communities to make sure that the provision matches the needs of the local economy. And I think they are well placed as conveners um, and with those, with those relationships to make sure that training providers, you know, further education, business leaders are around the table helping to inform and make those decisions. I do think, by the way, as a point of a sort of principle and good practice, one of the reasons why the job retention scheme has been such an effective intervention is that it was designed with businesses and trade unions sat around the table helping the government to, to outline the contours of the scheme and how it would work. I think we have to take the same approach now, but um, learn from some of the mistakes of this pandemic and decentralise. Um, because, you know, the, as you say, look, the money's there, but it's currently sitting in the Treasury. Um, and, you know, it's um, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy to sort of answer questions about what, what Labour would be doing. Of course, um, you know, at the moment, we, 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 we're only able to complain. We'd quite like to govern, but it's quite astonishing, really, that these answers are not coming from the government right now, who have both the privilege and the responsibility to lead our country and to, and to make sure that we're dealing with some of these big and fairly obvious challenges. Lifelong learning, a challenge that existed long before um, COVID-19 was ever heard of. How would Labour pay for all this? Because lots of money is not sitting in the Treasury anymore. It's, uh, it's been spent and the addition to um, borrowing this year, many figures put above £300 billion, pounds, uh, an enormous number. How would you go about paying for this? Well, I think we're, we're one thing that we have got going for us as a country at the moment is the fact that interest rates are at um, record lows and so the cost of borrowing isn't quite as prohibitive as it might have been. Clearly the government is going to have to spend significant sums of money both in terms of crisis response and helping to kickstart the um, the economic recovery. There is a debate that is inevitably coming down the path towards us in terms of the impact that that has on sort of medium term tax and spending decisions. We're not at a place yet where um, we should be um, doing things like um, putting up taxes. That would be the wrong thing to do at the start of one of the worst recessions in, you know, sort of 300 or so years. But clearly there are difficult decisions coming down the line. That's one of the reasons why today one of the themes of Annalisa Dodd's speech um, and you know what she was saying on 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 the today program this morning is about challenging um value you know the government on value for money and where it's been spending during this pandemic um there are a whole number of projects and examples of waste we've pointed to but of course there is a very obvious and egregious one which is the job retention bonus where the government is spending nine billion pounds on something that hmrc described as a deadweight cost so we will be challenging government on where it's spending money to make sure that every penny is spent effectively um, but um, but for the moment, um, you know, the government has to do, as, as the Chancellor said, whatever it takes. Uh, and then I think we've got um, some big questions um, sort of coming down, uh, you know, across all parties about what that then, you know, therefore means in terms of sort of medium to longer term fiscal policy and some difficult choices ahead. Mm-hmm. Would, you, would you accept, though, that a government can't get it all right, that there's going to be an element of dead weight or money that you, in theory, didn't have to spend in order to get some of the money to the right place? And some of the numbers she's picked out are, uh, are very small, um, hundreds of millions which, pounds, which doesn't sound very small, but in the context of 300 billion uh, more, um, do seem in a way like small beer. 
Well, it's all relative, isn't it? I mean, if I talk to my local council leader about some of the sums of waste, I think he would argue that local authorities really need that money and it would make a, a, a real difference. So I don't think we should be complacent about waste. And of course, what we are doing today um, by challenging government waste is also sending a signal about um, where value for money and fiscal responsibility fits in the context of the new leadership of our party. Um, but, you know, I, I, I totally accept um, what you say. I mean, there are some um, you know, things the Chancellor did to get money out the door to businesses. We certainly wouldn't be criticising that in terms of sort of business support. But the, what, what I found so appalling about the job retention bonus is that this is something that was described as a deadweight cost up front. And this is something where the risks were identified to ministers up front and a ministerial direction had to be issued. And actually, there's, there's scant evidence to suggest that it's making any real difference in terms of the big key challenge which is keeping people in work. It's kind of neither here nor there. I'm so, sure some small, smaller businesses will appreciate the £1,000 bonus, but in the grand scheme of things, it's neither here nor there. And that £9 billion would be better spent elsewhere. Do you think it's worth switching subject briefly, um, but not very far away? Um, is it worth jeopardising a deal with the EU in order to preserve Britain's freedom of movement on state aid? I'm not sure that this state aid issue is as big as the government is sort of talking it up as. I mean, you know, not least when you look at levels of state aid in other major European economies, I think this has always been a little bit of a red herring and that some of the state aid challenges are more about our domestic political priorities and, and the positions of the government of the day rather than an EU question. I do think overall, though, you can't have one week the government lauding the Japan deal as great for Britain um, and then the next week dismiss um, you know, the risks of not having a trade deal with the European Union, which is our nearest and biggest single trading partner. And the context of some of the other discussions and some of the other difficult choices we've just been discussing, um, you know, the idea you would make things demonstrably much more difficult on the on the on the on the economy um, because of political and ideological dogma in the Conservative Party. It's just crazy, really. Um, you know, we've got to get serious about this. And Brexit's done. We've left the European Union. That argument is dead and buried. Mm. However much I might have strong views the other way. It's dead and buried. And so, you know, this issue now is it's, it's about a single question. Are we serious about striking a trade deal with our nearest and biggest trading partner? And the consequences for both the UK and the European Union of not doing that deal would be serious and severe. The problems are not um, insignificant, but neither are they insurmountable. And the government and the EU have got to get a bit more serious about this because the clock's ticking and business needs certainty. Well, speaking of the clock ticking, we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, we're streaking. Thank you very much indeed for that quick rush through some of the main economic questions of the day. And uh, we're stopping now. I, everyone has a uh, has time to get a cup of coffee and so on before our next event, which starts at 9.30 with uh, Helen Hayes, uh, the shadow for the Cabinet Office, and talking about the future relations between government and the public. Would not be more relevant. So I hope you join us for that. And we're streaking again. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much.